Did anyone see that this week? If you didn't, uh, tens of millions of other people around the world did. And this is little seven-year-old Amelia singing Let It Go from Frozen. It's a pretty normal thing for a seven-year-old to do, isn't it? But the thing that made this video stand out, the thing that made this go viral all over the internet, the thing that made it appear on the news all around the world, is that that gorgeous little girl is singing while in a bomb shelter in Kiev. Amidst all the ugliness in the world, little Amelia decided to sing. Against all the darkness, the war, the killing, the suffering, her song shone brightly. A little ray of sunshine, a little glimmer of hope in an otherwise dark and ugly world. And the world took notice. Well, friends, this morning we come to consider one of the darkest and ugliest passages in the whole of the Bible. There are probably some worse ones, but this is... This is pretty right up there. Just consider some of the things that we just read. A huge crowd of men trying to gang rape two innocent strangers. If that wasn't bad enough, we also see a father offering his own daughters as sex slaves to that same gang of men. The tale gets even more twisted later on when those daughters get their father drunk and incestuously raping. But perhaps the darkest and ugliest feature of this whole story is the depiction of a God who kills a whole city of people in an act of divine judgment. This is ugly stuff. It's dark. It's devastating. You won't read this story in children's Bibles. The details are horrific. There's a reason I sent the youth church guys out first. I'm going to leave it up to mums and dads whether you read this stuff with your kids. But everywhere you look in this passage, there is deep, deep darkness. But shining through that darkness, there is something beautiful. Something that gives each and every one of us real reason to hope. Because this story, as horrible as it is, has been preserved for us in your Bibles to show us the most beautiful story of all. And so I'm going to pray right now that God would help us to see his light shining through the darkness of this passage. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we read passages like this and we just want to close them. It's hard to see how this can be the word of a good God. But Lord, help us to see this morning the beauty of this passage as we see your justice revealed to us and particularly in the gospel. Lord, open our eyes to understand this passage so that we may know you better and may rejoice in the relationship that we have with you. Amen. Well, friends, if you've just joined us, we've spent eight weeks following the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And the the whole point of the Abraham story, the, the reason that God has preserved his account in the Bible for us all these years is so that you and I can see God's eternal plan to invite people into relationship with him. 
Abraham's story is here to show us that we can have what he had. That we can have a relationship with the living God. That we can enjoy the immense privilege of belonging to him forever. That's why we have it. And so each week, as we've looked at Abraham's story, we're learning more and more about who God is and what he's like and what it means to belong to him. Well, this week, we're zooming in on God's justice. And there's three things that we're going to know, that we're going to see about God's justice. Um, I don't think they're on your outline this week. You've got a blank page. That's all right. There's three things. They're easy to remember. First, we're going to see how God's justice is the best and most comforting news you'll ever hear. Secondly, we're going to see how God's justice is the worst and most terrifying news you'll ever hear. And then we're going to see the one thing that makes all the difference. The one thing that makes the terrifying news of God's judgment on sin and makes it good news. So there's three things. But we begin where we left off last week in chapter 18, where Abraham has just been paid a visit by God and two angels. Now, we saw this last week. These three men arrive at Abraham's tent. He thinks they're just ordinary men passing by. He welcomes them in. He persuades them to stop. He gives them some food. And then he sits down to have some lunch with them and then suddenly realizes that he's eating with the living God and two of his divine messengers. It's happened to all of us, right? No, this is, this is unique. This is special. This doesn't happen to anyone. But in verse 16, where we pick it up, God goes to leave. And then he decides to let Abraham in on something significant that he's about to do. He considers not telling him, but then he decides, no, Abraham should know. And in verse 20, God tells Abraham about his plan to wipe the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah off the map. Now, there's two important things that we need to see about Sodom and Gomorrah. First, Abraham's nephew, Lot, lives there. That's a big thing for Abraham. Abraham and Lot are tight. He's his only living relative, and Lot lives in the place where God is about to destroy. The second thing we need to see is that Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked cities. God says in verse 20 that their sin is grievous. They are known for being wicked. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were arrogant. They were greedy. They had no concern for the poor or the needy. But in Genesis 19, well, we get a horrifying picture of what Sodom is really like when the men of the city unite in attempting to rape God's messengers. It's horrific. It's grotesque. It's the kind of stuff that makes you want to look away, but God sees it. And so God acts. He decides to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But before we get to that bit, did you notice why God chose to do something about Sodom and But what was it that provoked God to actually come down and investigate their sin and then judge their sin? Did did you notice what it was? We see it in verse 20 of chapter 18. He says there was an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. That is to say, God heard the cries of those who were suffering at the hands of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
He, he heard their cries and so he acted. And it's really important that we see this, that we understand this. Because you see, we live in a time where less and less people believe in God and more and more people who do are more and more trying to create a God of their own choosing. You see, the way people view God now is like how they view a sandwich at Subway. It's a, it's a make-your-own-creation. I'm going to have a God who's loving. I like that. I like the God who gives me stuff. Oh, no, no, I don't want a God who expects something from me. You can keep that. You see, that's what we do with God. And even Christians do this. I, I had a conversation with a Christian recently. Well, I mean, he claimed to be a Christian, but he said he couldn't accept the idea of a God who sends people to help. He couldn't accept it. So he created a God of his own choosing, a God who only loves people. There's a problem with that. There's a massive problem with that. And we see it exposed in this passage. Because the only reason God chose to do something about Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, the only reason God chose to punish sin was because of love for people. It was because he cared about the people who were crying out for help. You see, you can't pit God's justice and God's love against each other. But they go together. They have to go together. You see, if you believe in a God who doesn't judge sin, well, you don't believe in a loving God. A God who loves so much has to judge sin. He has to give hope to people who are suffering at the hands of wicked people. He has to hold sin to account. And so he does. Because of his love, because he is moved by the outcry that he has heard against Sodom and Gomorrah, he acts and chooses to judge. And friends, this is the best and most comforting news that you can hear when you are a victim of evil and wickedness in this world. Because right now in our world, there are people suffering, aren't there? Right now, there are millions and millions of Ukrainians who are watching Russia destroy their land and their people. And there is no hope for them unless there is a God who will hold those wrongs to account. Right now in our world, there are Afghanis watching the Taliban systematically undo everything that its democratically elected government helped establish. And there is no hope for those people unless there is a God who will judge sin. Friends, God hears the cries of the oppressed. He hears the cries of victims of sin. He hears the cries of refugees in immigration detention. He hears the cries of women being mistreated and abused by their partners. He hears the cries of children being bullied at school. He hears the cries of the elderly who are being neglected in aged care homes. And friends, he hears your cry. He hears you cry when you're mistreated, when you are wronged, when you fall victim to wickedness in this world. Friends, the God of the Bible is a God who sees injustice. He hears the cry of the pressed. He is a God who hates injustice. 
And because of His great love for people, the God of the Bible is a God who will judge those who perpetrate injustice. Friends, that is good news. That is good news in a world where there is so much injustice and there seems no human way of dealing with it. That is good news when the court system cannot bring justice. That is good news for the oppressed. It is good news for the victims. It is good news for those who live and die at the mercy of wicked people. It's great news. Comforting news. But it's not good for everyone. Because God's judgment on sin is the best and most comforting news in the world for those who are victims of sin. But on the flip side, God's judgment is the worst and most terrifying news in the world for those who perpetrate it. For the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's justice is going to be devastating. It's going to be terrifying. Which is exactly why when Abraham hears God's plan to destroy Sodom, the city where his nephew is living, Abraham speaks up. And what we have here in, this, in chapter 18 is, is quite remarkable what actually happens. Have a look from verse 23. Abraham approached God and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there were 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, God. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, this this is bold what Abram's doing. It, it, It takes some serious guts to stand up to the living God and and sort of question his decisions. That's exactly what Abraham does. But what we need to see here is that Abraham is not doubting God or undermining God or attacking God. When Abraham says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He's not accusing God of doing wrong. What he's doing is, is being a priest. You see, in the Bible, a priest is a mediator between God and people. It's the go-between. The priest acts on behalf of the people before God and acts on behalf of God before the people. They're the go-between, the mediator, the middleman. And a priest, you know, is a little bit like a defence attorney. My knowledge of the legal system is gleaned almost exclusively from TV. So, Colin, just bear with me. But as far as I know... If you appear in court, you don't represent yourself unless you want to lose. You don't represent yourself. You have someone else represent you to the court and to the judge. And and they make your case on your behalf. You see, that's what Abraham's doing here. He's standing before God, the judge, and he's pleading a case on behalf of someone else. God is the judge. He's ready to pronounce his verdict. And Abraham stands before him and he presents his case. But what's really, really interesting here, and this is something that I only noticed for the very first time this week, is who it is that Abraham is representing. Because instinctively you imagine that Abraham's concern is for his nephew, right? 
That makes sense. He loves him. He cares about him. He wants to make sure he's not going to get destroyed by God's fiery judgment. So he's worried about Lot. Sorry, did I say Abraham again? He's worried about Lot, his nephew. And so our natural assumption is that Abraham is trying to have God spare Lot. But look closely. Look closely at the passage. Because Abraham doesn't actually mention Lot at all. Not even once. And then when Abraham pleads before God and asks, what if there are righteous people in the city? He doesn't ask God to spare the righteous people. He asks God to spare the whole city. I'm going to say it again because it's a bit confusing, but you've got to see what I mean. We'd expect Abraham to say to God, if you find 50 righteous people in the city, will you spare those 50 righteous people? But he doesn't say that. He says, if you find 50 righteous people, will you spare the whole city? Essentially what Abraham is asking, he's saying, could you be more merciful, God? If, if there are 50 righteous people that don't deserve judgment, could you show mercy to the whole lot? He's trying to find out just how merciful could this God be? This God who is perfectly just and perfectly loving. He's not accusing God. He's actually just getting to know God better. And he's asking, is it possible that you could be so kind to unrighteous people on account of 50 righteous people? And what does God say? Yes. Yes, I, I, I would be kind to unrighteous people if there are 50 righteous people. Yes, I'll spare the city. And so Abraham tries again. Is it possible that God would show mercy to unrighteous people on account of 45 righteous people. Yes. And so he keeps going. Could could God possibly be gracious to a whole city of undeserving people if there are 40 deserving people? And again, the answer is yes. And so on and on he goes. 30 righteous people, 20, 10. But then he stops. Why has he stopped? If he's concerned about his nephew Lot, why doesn't he just come out and say what he's thinking? God, what if you only find one righteous person? What if, the own, what if you only find Lot? Will you spare the whole city because of Lot? Because of one righteous person? He doesn't ask it though, does he? He stops at ten. Now, we don't really know why he stops. The Bible doesn't say. People have all sorts of different theories. Maybe Abraham decided to quit while he was ahead. He's bargained a fair bit. Maybe he just got to ease off. Maybe he got scared. He is kind of questioning the living God. Maybe he thought there was at least ten righteous people in Sodom. Or maybe he came to the conclusion that, well, there was in fact no righteous people in Sodom. We don't know. But what we do know is that in the end, Abraham failed. I always sort of thought he succeeded because Lot got rescued, but he didn't. Because God doesn't find ten righteous people in Sodom, and so he doesn't spare the city. He destroys it. When God came to Sodom, all God found was Lot, who was willing to hand his own daughters over as sex slaves to a gang of men. All God found was Lot's wife who didn't want to leave the place. 
All God found was Lot's two daughters who would end up raping their father. All God found was those daughters' fiancés who laughed at the idea of God judging their sin. When God visited Sodom, what he found was a whole city of unrighteous people. A whole city of people who had abandoned God's laws. A whole city of people who were arrogant and greedy. A whole city of people who did not love God and did not love their neighbours. And so for those people, God's justice brought about their terrifying end. You see, Abraham failed. He prayed and he prayed to God, but he couldn't save Sodom. But the thing is, Abraham's failure actually helps us to understand the priest that we really need. Because if you remember, back in verse 18, the reason that God chooses to tell Abraham his plan is because of his promise that all nations on earth would be blessed through Abraham. And centuries later, into Abraham's family, a new priest arrived. And Jesus came as as the go-between between people and God. He says it clearly. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to God except through me. He is the go-between. He is the priest. And just like the messengers in Sodom, Jesus came to announce God's judgment on sin. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells us that God's final judgment will be just like it was in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. You won't see it coming, but when it comes, it will be terrifying. It will be devastating. God will come to visit the earth to see if there are any righteous people. And Jesus came to warn us that there are none. There is no one righteous, not even one. All of us have rejected God. All of us have deserted him. All of us have perverted justice. And all of us deserve to face his terrible judgment. But there's more. Because while Jesus came as a messenger of God's judgment, he also came to reveal the depths of God's love. You see, those things go hand in hand. They go together. God's judgment on sin and God's love are inseparable. And so Jesus came to reveal both. And when Jesus Christ set foot on this earth, he came to be the answer to the question that Abraham was too afraid to ask. Abraham asked, is it possible that God could be merciful to the unrighteous on account of 50 righteous people? And God said, yes. Is it possible that God could be merciful to the unrighteous on account of 45 righteous people? And God said, yes. 40 righteous people? 30, 20, 10? Yes, 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 yes. But when Jesus arrived, he asked, Is it possible that God could be merciful to the unrighteous on account of one righteous person? Is it possible that God could be kind to sinners on account of one sinless person? Is it possible that God could pour his love and grace out on undeserving people on account of one deserving person? And God looked at his son and he said, Yes! God allowed 
Jesus to stand in your place. To take your punishment. To face God's wrath against all injustice. He did that for you. He died the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. But there's more than that. Because he didn't just take the punishment that you deserved. He also gave to you the blessing that he deserves. You see, he does the switch. He he stands before God and says, God, I want you to give these people what I deserve. I want you to treat them as if they are me. I want you to love them like they are your own children as he is. And you see, God, Jesus is still doing that now. He died in your place, but now he stands before God. Hebrews says he, he stands and lives to intercede for you. He's standing before the throne of God. He is the high priest and he's standing there and he's saying, Father, love them like you love me. Treat them as righteous as I am. Treat them as holy like I am. Treat them as your own dear children. Friends, the justice of God is the most terrifying news in the world when you are guilty. But the good news, the greatest news, the most comforting news in all the world is that Jesus came and took God's judgment on himself. He absorbed God's wrath on sin. And now he lives to intercede for you. We're actually going to sing these words right now. In fact, Deb, you want to actually come up. We're going to sing before the throne of God. And we read these words. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. Our Lord God, it it baffles us that you could be so kind that you could be so loving, that you could show so much mercy to people who deserve nothing but your judgment. Lord, we see in Genesis how terrifying your judgment is, that you must hold sin to account, and we recognise this morning that you must hold our sin to account. It would be unloving for you to not do so. But Lord, we marvel, we rejoice, we thank you so much that while not compromising your justice, you also show this. That by punishing our sin completely in your son, you allow us to live. And you allow us to be your dear children. Lord, help us marvel at this news. Help us rejoice at this great love. Help us to be changed by it forever, we pray, for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen.